Hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. My name is Adiel Moore, and uh, I'm happy to be here. I am your host, and this is episode number 34 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. Last week, I introduced a new segment, and that segment was called Numbers Game. So basically, I tell you about a player that wore a number that coincides with the episode number of the podcast. Last week, episode 33, I gave you Scottie Pippen. Little did I know it would be such a precursor to an incredible feature on Scottie Pippen in The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls documentary that's being featured and is incredibly popular around the world right now. We'll talk about that later. But this number actually... Not focusing on a specific athlete, but focusing on a curse. Yeah, yep, that's what I said, a curse. You can choose to believe me and choose to believe that it's cursed, and, and I'll give you everything to uh, to explain why. This is something that people ask me about all the time because I have consistently tweeted about it for the last 11 years now, um, and because it is something that I really, truly believe in. It has gotten to the point where people will text me out of the blue when something random happens with the number 34. It happens, um, my friends will see something with the number 34 and they'll reach out to me or they'll look at me if if we're together. Um, Someone literally right after I, they listened to the segment last week said, you realize next week is episode 34, right? As in, And I was like, yeah, and we're going to talk about it on the podcast because people need to know this story. So the number 34 is cursed, basically, and I believe it has not only cursed my life, but it has cursed significantly Cincinnati sports. And I just think in general, there's not too much good to come out of the number. And I'm going to give you, I have written down everything that I can think of from a sports-wise, not even my personal life, okay, because there's been a lot in my personal life where the number 34 has taken over. Now, there is some debate about when the curse actually started, and we can get to that in a little bit, but I try to go back as far as I can, and as you may have guessed, we're going back to 1934. This is when it started, and it leads all the way up until this past week, and it has something to do with the Bengals' future. So look back at 1934. The Cincinnati Reds were the worst team in baseball. They had a winning percentage of 34%. 34 years later, in 1968, the Cincinnati Bengals are officially founded. 20 years later, in Super Bowl 23, the 49ers beat the Bengals with 34 seconds left on the clock when Joe Montana found John Taylor in the back of the end zone to steal a Super Bowl away from Cincinnati. There are many people that believe the curse started then, in Super Bowl XXIII, with just 34 seconds to go. Other folks believe it started in 1991, when the Bengals were playing the Raiders in the AFC playoffs, in Oakland. Bo Jackson, the Oakland Raider running back who wore number 34, was the most popular athlete on the planet at that time, not named Michael Jordan. Bo took a run down the right sideline. He got tackled from behind. He broke his hip, one of the most severe and worst broken hips you can ever imagine, and he never played football again. Ended his football career, nearly completely ended his baseball career, and for the most part, 
completely changed Bo's life. The Bengals have not won a playoff game since that happened in 1991. Fast forward to 2009. The Bengals, home opener against the Denver Broncos. Bengal running back Cedric Benson scores with 34 seconds left to give the Bengals the lead 7-6. I was at that game. My dad looks at me and he says, 34 seconds, just like in Super Bowl twenty-three." I remember looking at him and thinking, why on God's green earth would you say that? And then this happened seconds later. Orton in the gun. Buckhalter right next to him. Orton pumps again to the sideline. Batted up. Oh, God! Stokely down the sideline! Can they catch him? Stokely! Wow! Touchdown! Denver! Unbelievable! Oh, my goodness! What a play! Bengals lose 12-7. One year later, the Reds in 2010 clinched the NL Central in a magical season. They get to Philadelphia to take on Roy Halladay and the Phillies. In Game 1 of the NLDS, Roy Halladay, of course, wearing number 34. Roy Halladay threw a no-hitter that night, and the Reds lost the series. 2011-2012, to the Bengals played the Houston Texans in the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. Both games are played in Houston where the Astros, Rockets, and Texans all have the number 34 retired. The Bengals lost both games, and the Texans scored touchdowns with 9:34 and 10:34 on the clock. Now here's something that's not necessarily related directly to the Bengals, but in 2000, 2013, Super Bowl 38, the Ravens played the 49ers in New Orleans. There was a delay because the stadium lost power. Half the lights went out. That delay lasted 34 minutes. The score at the time, 28 to 6. If you add those together, that equals 34. The Ravens ended up winning the game, and they scored 34 points while doing so. Other odd instances in the NBA, Dr. Jerry Buss, who owned the Lakers for many years, died in his 34th year of owning the Lakers. Kobe Bryant, the late great Kobe Bryant, tore his Achilles at 34 years old. All these things continue to happen over and over and over again. Then I've said before on the podcast, and if you know me closely, you know I work at the Bengals Pro Shop. One day, we didn't have much business. I was taking a walk through the stadium, which I do quite frequently, and normally I'll walk down through down the section all the way down to the front row and then walk back up, and that's what I was doing. And as I was walking back up, something caught my eye. It was very clearly written right there on the step. It was the number 34 in a completely empty Paul Brown Stadium that had been there for 20 years. Very clearly written was the number 34 on, you guessed it, row 34. It was at that moment I knew that this is truly real. Because why that number? The people who built the stadium could have written the number on any number of, there's 65,000 seats in there. But they wrote it on that one, and I saw it. And then you fast forward to this week, and you might be thinking, okay, this guy's an idiot by now, and that's fine. But this isn't even half of it, honestly, when you look at the things that happened in my personal life, and you can ask my closest friends, the number just pops up all the time. It's hard to believe. 
You just see it everywhere. Bad things happen. And then this week we got bad news. The NFL draft prospects take a test every year called the Wonderlick test. Basically, it's designed at how you look at problem solving, how you look at um, critical thinking, how you do with these things. It's a sort of an IQ test, so on and so on. I, th- I would think the best score you can get is 50. It's not many people ever get a 50. Not many people reach a 40. Joe Burrow is, in my understanding, going to be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft this week, scored a 34 on his Wonderlick test. And uh, the Bengals are going to draft him, and he's going to be the quarterback of the franchise. So that is just a rough look, an outline look, of all the incredible bad things that have happened in Cincinnati and in the Bengals and with random moments in sports with the number 34. Another one you could add to it, Homer Bailey, the longtime Reds right-handed pitcher, threw two no-hitters for the Reds. Then had to have Tommy John signed a 10-year, $100 million contract and barely pitched after that, and now he's no longer with the Reds and been with two teams since. Bad things just follow that number. But hopefully Joe Burrow, who appears to be the anomaly to pretty much everything, will be the anomaly to the number 34. If you go back to my Twitter account, if you go to at Audie Elmore, you can search it on Twitter, Search at Audie Elmore and search ETC, which stands for Embrace the Curse. Search literally just the number 34. You will see hundreds of tweets over the course of the last 11 years where I have showcased these moments where things happen. So, yeah, while you're there, drop a follow at Audie Elmore on Twitter and Instagram. And I talked about Joe Burrow, and and I hate the NFL draft 363 days of the year. And I have finally reached the point where I'm like, okay, I'm ready and excited and happy for the NFL draft. And this NFL draft is going to be one for the ages. I talked about it a little bit on previous podcasts. It's going to be all virtual. It's going to be something we have never seen before. Earlier this week, the league ran a mock draft, which Zach Taylor, the Bengals head coach, said earlier this week that it was scripted that all 32 teams were involved in the first 16 picks. So Every one of the first 16 picks was traded to another team. They wanted to see every possible scenario play out. And there was a technical glitch on the first pick of the draft, which belonged to the Bengals. The league and other reports have come out saying it had nothing to do with the Bengals themselves. It was just a technical glitch. You've got GMs and directors of player personnel and head coaches People that are going to be drafting from their dining room table, from their living room, from their basement, from a studio in the the attic. There are so many factors at play here. Internet bandwidth, cell phone connections. What if, does everybody have a generator at their house? So on and so forth. There is so much at stake here, obviously, for these teams and specifically for the Bengals. And there's also so much at stake for these prospects And there's so much at stake for the league. I said it a couple weeks ago. Peter King wrote it in his column. This is going to be a draft that they make a 30 for 30 about one day. And it's going to be awesome. There are going to be technical glitches. There are going to be moments where you were confused, where we're laughing. And honestly, I hope something goes wrong, but not too terribly wrong. The NFL has decided that this is going to be 
immaculate, that they're going to go all out. They're going to raise money for COVID-19 relief and healthcare workers and helping feed people and so on and so forth. It's going to be basically a telethon broadcast on ABC and ESPN and NFL Network all together. And the commissioner is going to be announcing the picks from his home in uh, New York City. And the NFL and Bud Light teamed up for a really cool uh, partnership this week where you can go on Twitter and record yourself, you know, preferably with Bud Light paraphernalia in your hands, wearing your team gear, booing the commissioner. Just, just, um, just record yourself booing, and they will play it in the background of the commissioner while he comes up to announce the picks. They are doing everything they can to continue this tradition. Credit to the commissioner, as as Aaron Rodgers likes to call him, Big Raj for being open about this and having a great sense of humor and continuing this tradition of getting booed like crazy every year. So you're still going to be able to boo Roger Goodell. They're still going to be able to talk to the players immediately, so on and so forth. So I think the NFL, I I totally believe they're going to pull this off. I don't think it'll be a complete disaster. And more than anything, I'm excited because it's a turning point in Bengals franchise history. I talked a little bit last week about how the Bulls had a turning point when Derrick Rose got hurt, and they've been searching for their next turning point ever since. They finally had that moment when they fired Gar Foreman and John Paxson. The Bengals' last turning point was January 9, 2016. It was that fateful playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers at Paul Brown Stadium. From that day on, nothing's been the same. The Bengals haven't made the playoffs. They fired Marvin Lewis. All that staff is gone. Half that team is gone. And now they've reached a new turning point. It wasn't hiring Zach Taylor. It wasn't going 2-14. and 14. It's going to be what happens on April 23, 2020. What they do with that first pick. I have every everything in me says they're going to take Joe Burrow. It will be the single most important day in the history of the franchise up until this point. Because the second they turn in that card with his name, the window opens. And as we know, those windows are not open for very long. They have set themselves up in an incredible offseason to be successful this year. I'm not saying they're going to go make the playoffs. I'm not saying they're going to go win the Super Bowl. But they're going to be a lot better than 2-14. and 14. It starts on Thursday night with Joe Burrow. And there are some people that say there's no way a guy like him can come in and make a difference that big. There's no way he can turn them around that much. You would be, for the most part, correct on that. However, the quarterback position is the most important position in all of sports. Joe Burrow comes in with an attitude. He's cocky. He's got an ego to him. He's Baker Mayfield without being kind of the dick that Baker Mayfield is. He is the best player in the draft. My apologies to Chase Young. Go Bucks. I think it goes without saying that his impact will not only be felt on the field, but off of it as well. In the stands, at the pro shop, in the streets of Cincinnati. You know, I worked with uh, with with someone this week who said, "Give me Dan Horde, the great Bengals play-by-play broadcaster." And Dan said, "What is 
What is the one, how would you describe this? What is the one word to describe how you feel about Joe Burrow coming to Cincinnati? And Mo Egger, another person I work with and, and a local talk show host here, said, deserved. You look at this offseason with the, the Reds and the Bengals and really look at the last five years since that playoff game, it's been hell and it's been tough. And Joe Burrow might not work out, and that's fine. But at the same time, we need him right now. And there's no other pick that will do the job. I believe in Joe Burrow, and, and I believe in Zach Taylor. You can't I, – I, I say that from the bottom of my heart. I believe in Zach Taylor. I really, truly do. And this is a turning point in this franchise, and it happens on Thursday night. As for the rest of the draft – I've said before, I don't like to speculate that much because we really don't know what's going to happen. And I said a couple weeks ago that you look at at the first two picks this year and you basically know what's going to happen. And then after that, you have no clue. And that still, for the most part, remains true. But earlier this week, NFL Network's Ian Rappaport reported that the Washington Redskins had begun taking some phone calls about the second overall pick. And the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Maybe they would pass on Chase Young to get more draft picks. Here's why. Last year, they moved up for Montez Sweat. They also got their franchise quarterback in Dwayne Haskins, or so they think so. They pick number two in this round, or number two in this draft, and they don't pick again until pick number 66. So they pick number two, and then not again until the third round. They already have Ryan Kerrigan, Montez Sweat, and a solid defensive line. Would it actually be possible for them to move back, acquire another pick or two, and then pass on Chase Young. I don't see it happening at the moment because who would be a viable suitor to come up to two? The Dolphins, they probably can still get their quarterback if they stay put. The teams directly behind them are not exactly looking the, the teams directly in front of Miami, I should say, are not di- exactly looking right for a quarterback. I, I fumbled that all up, but you know what I'm saying. But Washington's in a tough spot now because you've got what some people believe is the best player in the draft and Chase Young and a chance to really build your defense, but at the same time, you're losing – it's, it is a rebuild for Washington. So it's just something to think about that I think is interesting. And the more that I think about the Dolphins, I don't think the Dolphins should move at all. The way they attacked this offseason, the way that team finished for Brian Flores last year, you've got a veteran quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick who is fine. He's not great. He's fine. You might want to take one of your picks and use it on Tua Tagovailoa or Justin Herbert, but you also want to use those first-round picks and continue to build your team. Tom Brady's not in that division anymore. You've got a legitimate shot to contend quicker than you may have expected going into last season. So I think it's a, it's something interesting when it comes to when it comes to the Dolphins. You know, you think about Tua Tagovailoa, and I have said from the beginning, and I don't know if I've said it on here or not. I don't think Tua is going to be a good NFL quarterback. There are people that are goo goo gaga over this guy. First and foremost, left-handed quarterbacks don't work in the NFL. They haven't in quite some time. I may I can't remember if I said this last week or not, but they haven't in quite some time. And you might be saying, well, that's a dumb reason. That's fine, but you look at the last two years, guess how many left-handed quarterbacks there were in the NFL? 32 teams, three spots per team, zero. 
The dude has been banged up. Ankles, knees, shoulders, hips. Dave Lapham, the the longtime Bengals color analyst, always says the best ability in the NFL is availability. Our team's going to give up that much for Tua Tagovailoa? Is the fear taking Tua Tagovailoa or not taking him? Because he's obviously got potential. But I just can't see it working out for any of those teams taking him. I just don't see him as a major NFL prospect or as a, as a, I just don't see him being a successful NFL quarterback. It doesn't happen often with Alabama quarterbacks. He's going to have two or three receivers drafted in the first round. I looked, I looked at uh, Daniel Jeremiah, who has an excellent podcast. He's the NFL network's main draft guru. Now that Mike Mayock has left. And he talked about evaluating Tua Tagovailoa on tape. And he said, listen, I try to go through and look at every throw these guys make. It's hard for Tua Tagovailoa because everybody's open by seven yards, and they play terrible teams each year. You look at, he says, then you go to third and seven and longer, where it's an obvious passing situation. The defense knows you're passing. He's got an excellent offensive lineman, offensive line, who he's going to have a couple of them drafted in the first round, and all pro wide receivers at that position, three NFL receivers. It's hard to evaluate a quarterback like that. Then come to come in mind, Tua did not score very well in the Wonderlick, only a 19. So these are all things that that add up to me to say Tua is not going to be that great of an NFL quarterback. And I, like I said, I don't. I said a couple weeks ago, I I hate when people try to sit here and be a, a draft guru. I'm that's not what I'm trying to be. I'm just saying from what I've read and from what I've seen and my general opinion on it, I I just don't think. He's going to be that good. I don't know any more than you do, and uh, I don't really know all that much more than anybody else because, as I have said before, the NFL draft is a bunch of hearsay and a bunch of nonsense. Hell, Washington might not even want to trade that pick. They may have just said to somebody, to Ian Rappaport, hey, uh, we got some phone calls about the number two pick, and they have could have easily lied to his face. And he reports that, and now everyone's like, oh. I would be surprised if they got any calls about the number two pick, honestly. So the NFL draft is Thursday night, 8 o'clock, and uh, it's going to be exciting, man. I'm excited as a Bengals fan. Like I said, uh, they did a mock draft this week. I guess it was chaos for for a little bit, GMs forgetting to mute their mic, technical glitches, so on and so forth. It's going to be exciting. I can't wait to watch it, honestly. Um, so to, to segue here into something else, because I've talked about the draft and I've talked about uh, 34, um, there was a few questions that I for, I totally missed and forgot to answer last week on the podcast, so I want to uh, to answer those that uh, people had had submitted. Um, that a couple of my friends that don't have social media that texted me and said, "Hey, um, and here's our questions." So I said, "Okay, cool," and then I completely forgot when I got here. So uh, the first one is, "What is your dream job and why?" And for the longest time, ever since I was eight years old, my dream job was to be the play-by-play radio voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, as I said earlier, I now get the chance to work with the play-by-play radio voice of the Cincinnati Bengals, Dan Horde, uh, every Sunday. And it is the absolute highlight of my week. Dan Horde is is awesome. I cannot say enough about Dan Horde. He is the coolest guy ever. When I was 18 years old, he was nice enough to sit down with me for an hour at Bengals practice and just tell me about the profession and tell me about everything. And then uh, here we are a few years later, and, I, and I'm working with him. And um, I think over the course of time, my 
aspirations and my dream job has changed a little bit. I would still love to do that, and I think I could do it, and I truly mean that. But at the same time, I have, based on my experiences in college and based on my experiences in the workforce now, I think my dream job has sort of shifted to um, uh, almost like a team reporter or a, a video coordinator or basically digital media for a specific franchise. And that's what I, I guess that would, I guess that would consider to be my dream job now uh, because I love creating videos. I love creating content. And I think if I were to do it for a team like the Bengals, you know, I, I've applied for nine or 10 jobs for the Bengals in the last 10 years. I haven't gotten a single call back on any of them. I haven't even gotten a no. I haven't got an email back, not one time. And that, you know, frustrates me because I know I'm not the most qualified candidate. I know that for a fact. But there is no one that they will ever, ever hire that has more love and admiration for that franchise and would be more dedicated to doing everything possible to help them more than me. And that's just a fact. I know that for a fact. Um, So that's my dream job. And, you know, I, 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 I joke around with some of the guys at the pro shop and I say, listen, I wake up every day and I think, how can I make, how can I help the Cincinnati Bengals win the Super Bowl? And, you know, that's kind of a joke, but at the same time, it's true because that is my long term goal. That is my dream job scenario to be a part of the Cincinnati Bengals and to do my part in the organization to help them win a Super Bowl. And uh, some people are rolling their eyes hardcore right now, but, and that's fine. Go ahead. But that's my dream and that's what I've always wanted to do. And, uh, all I really want in life at the end of the day is the Bengals to win a Super Bowl before my dad dies, um, to be honest with you. Um, so this says, what made you get into sports, especially football? Was there a life-changing experience or anything? This is an interesting question. My first love was actually basketball and baseball. I loved basketball. I could not get enough of the NBA. I loved Allen Iverson. I loved the Philadelphia 76ers. I would watch NBA TV nonstop. I would watch Like Mike nonstop. Ken Griffey Jr. was my favorite athlete. I watched the Reds. I, I had his jersey. I was I was batting left-handed in the backyard, doing his stance, doing a whole nine yards. I loved, 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 loved the Reds. And then I started to see the affinity that my dad had for the Bengals. And I started to to see really, you know, just all I just started to see how much he liked the Bengals. And, you know, every little kid wants to be like their dad. And then uh, I went to the Bengals' first game at Paul Brown Stadium. I don't have many memories of it. But the first memory of a football game that I went to that I can truly say was uh, a a life-changing experience for me was in 2003. We went to the RCA Dome in Indianapolis to watch the Bengals play the Indianapolis Colts in the preseason. And I remember the first time I walked up out of the the concourse in through the little tunnel and saw the field and the roof of the RCA Dome for the first time. I remember seeing, I think it was Mike Vanderjack warming up. And the Bengals were in their all whites, those, those uniforms from when I was a kid that I loved so, so much. Carson Palmer played a lot that game. He was a rookie. I look at that, I, that moment when I walked in and I saw the football field for the first time truly in a way that I was able to appreciate it, um, that changed my life. And I don't think I ever looked at any of the other sports the same. Baseball, I still have a – I'm especially fond of baseball now, and I love baseball. Um, but football, 
that moment right there changed my life. And then I think a secondary moment later on in life was the first time I went to Ohio Stadium. I went there uh, with my friends to watch them play. I think it was like Western Michigan or something. And that's a whole different level of football. And uh, yeah, that 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 was cool. I'm almost getting choked up. I love football. Okay. Um, who is your athlete crush and why? I, first, I didn't understand this question, but he was talking about female athletes. Um, you could you could pick up a, you couldn't pick up you could pick out about three or four players from the United States women's national team. I'm talking like Alex Morgan. Oh my God, she has my heart. A- Abby Dahlkemper. I may have butchered her name. Abby Dahlkemper. Kelly O'Hara. Man, those three women have my heart. Either one of like, the. I think it's a three-way tie between those three. Um, yeah, Abby Dahlkemper, Alex Morgan, and Kelly O'Hara. They're awesome. All right, last question here. Based on the first two episodes of The Last Dance, what are your thoughts on the relationship between Jerry Krause and the Bulls players and coaches? This was was definitely the most interesting storyline, in my opinion, of the first two episodes. And it was, I guess, the biggest storyline, the only main storyline of the two episodes. Listen, Jerry Krause gets a lot of blame for the way things ended, and as he should, but he should also get a lot of credit because he built that team. And you hear Jerry Reinsdorf, the Bulls owner, talk about how Jerry Krause was a scout for the White Sox. And he just shows up and says, hey, I want to be the GM of the Bulls. And Reinsdorf sees all these people and says, all these people say, don't touch him. He has a way of alienating people. And Reinsdorf does it anyways, to Reinsdorf's credit. Next thing you know, Michael Jordan is there, and you, and Jordan was already there when when. Kraus came in, but he starts surrounding them with all these good players. They talk about the trade in which Charles Oakley got sent to New York for Bill Cartwright. That was a huge deal. Scottie Pippen coming in and being drafted. Jerry Krause built that team and kept it alive for those six championships and the season in between when they didn't win and Michael was playing baseball. I think it is it's fair to criticize Jerry because he did have the little man syndrome and he, like they said in the, in the documentary, couldn't get out of his own way. So specifically with the Scotty Pippi, Scotty Pippen situation, Scotty Pippi, the Scotty Pippen situation specifically, first and foremost, Scotty should have never signed that deal. Seven years, 18 million at the time, a foolish deal. And Jerry Reinsdorf told him, I think this is a bad deal for you. But Scotty, and this is what you got to keep in mind. Having seen what had happened to his brother and his father, who were both at home in Arkansas in wheelchairs, he wanted the stability and knowing that he would be able to take care of his family for the rest of their life. That's all he wanted to do. He was still young. He was still, um, I guess he had a lot more humility then than he eventually started to get as he became a star in the NBA. So... Scotty should have never signed the deal, but I understand where his thinking was when he did. Secondly, Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause should have done better by Scotty Pippen than by saying he can't renegotiate at all, even if those were the terms they agreed to at the beginning of the contract. I think you have to have a human side to you and say, hey, we know that you're worth a lot more than you're getting paid. Let's work on something again. 
And I, I think that both both sides obviously are at fault. Jerry Krause is at fault a lot. Scotty shouldn't have attacked Jerry Krause the way that he did. And I agree with Michael when he says that that Scotty shouldn't have waited until the season started to have surgery. That was a selfish move by Scotty. But you know, at the same time, I understand where Scotty's head was at. And uh, I think it's fascinating. And, and listen, with this documentary, we've only reached the tip of the iceberg with this with this team and and the things that are going on. Everything that I've read from it, Michael was basically waiting and waiting and waiting and didn't want any of this footage released because he's afraid the way it will make him look. And uh, they did a pretty good job of how Michael looked in the in the first two episodes, but um, I, I think that will change slowly and surely as as the series goes on. Um, but I think there is without a doubt that Michael Jordan is all he thinks about is winning all the time. I think that was without question, and I think you'll start to see the greatness of that come out more and more throughout the course of the documentary. But Jerry Krause was at fault, but he's also at fault for building the team. And uh, he did a great job of doing that. Um, you know, there, there had to be more to it, and I'm sure we'll get to, to know that later on. But, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here because he obviously did not have the respect of almost any of the players. So, really interesting. It's must-see TV every Sunday night on ESPN, 9 o'clock Eastern and 10 o'clock Eastern. They play two episodes for 10 weeks, and um, – it's it's so it's so worth your time so 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 much worth your time okay so uh that basically does it for me in uh, in this episode earlier this week though I, I do want to mention quickly i had this thought about how i view college football in the nfl and it's long been a debate between my friends and between people around the world and around the country um which do you prefer college or the nfl and um, it's a fair question, and I think for the longest time, I've always said the NFL, but I think my viewpoint has started to change on that topic ever so slightly, and that's what we're going to talk about next week on the Ball Don't Lie podcast. I'm excited. I have already written kind of my thoughts and my notes, and I'm looking, for, and looking through it right now. It's almost eight paragraphs. I'm trying to figure out how to say what I'm saying while also... I'm just trying to make sense of what I'm thinking and feeling about the college game and the NFL game. So I'm looking forward to to talking about that next week on the podcast. In the meantime, NFL draft this week uh, and this weekend, I should say. And uh, in the meantime, hopefully we will have continued uh, continued progress on the COVID-19 front where it seems like a lot of curves have started to flatten and uh, in some cases have started to begin their decline. So hopefully that is good news not only for – uh, the people of the United States and of the world, but also for those of us that are big sports fans and consume sports um, as much as we do. So hopefully that continues to happen. Hopefully everyone stays safe. Hopefully everyone washes their hands and does not get impatient or bored or forget the purpose of why we're going through what we're going through because it's very, very important. So in the meantime, thank you so much for listening to this episode, episode number 34 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. Remember, folks, ball don't lie, and I can't wait to bring examples of that from live sporting events that have happened so that that didn't make any sense, live sporting events that have happened. I can't wait to bring examples of ball didn't lie to this podcast with Sports Returns. I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, have fun. Be safe. Go Bucks.